Welcome to the Talking, Learning and Teaching podcast. On the show today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Sally Brown. Sally is an independent consultant in learning, teaching and assessment and emerita professor at Leeds Beckett University, where she was until 2010 Pro Vice Chancellor. She is also visiting professor at Edgehill University and formerly at the universities of Plymouth, Robert Gordon, South Wales and Liverpool, John Moores and at Australian universities, James Cook, Central Queensland and the Sunshine Coast. Sally holds honorary doctorates from the universities of Plymouth, Kingston, Bournemouth, Edinburgh Napier and Lincoln. And she is also a principal fellow of the Higher Education Academy, a Staff and Educational Development Association senior fellow and a national teaching fellow. Sally, how are you? Well, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction, Kevin. And I'm really <laughs> pleased today to be talking to you about assessment, because as you may know, that's what I like talking about more than anything else at all. Well, it's a good job because that's the reason we've got you on the show today, Sally. So absolutely fantastic. I'm going to launch straight into the questions then. Um, when did you first get interested in assessment being part of learning? Well, I originally trained as a school teacher. So you would say to some extent it would happen there. And I think teacher training very often gives you all sorts of things to think about, even though in the old days it was quite sort of fuddy-duddy in many ways. I moved then through FE into, um, I worked in prisons and borstals and all sorts of things. And then I started working for the Open University. And it was there that I actually got the best training I think anybody could possibly get because the Open University back in the, believe it or not, 70s was taking assessment very, very seriously. I remember I was heavily pregnant with my second son when I started working for them. I couldn't get to the training in Cambridge because the train line was down. So I actually thumbed a lift on a JS Sainsbury's lorry and went along long for the best possible training you could imagine where they did what was very unusual in those days they actually made us look at a variety of scripts and work out collectively between us what was good what was not so good and basically using the same five scale that I argue people should use now is it absolutely stunningly good that would be, you know, the very top marks is it good with so there's a few little things is it good but you can see quite a few ways it can be improved. Is it good enough or is it not good enough? And I think those are the five gradations that in the British system certainly map onto first, two, one, two, two, third and fail. And I think students, the crucial difference is between the good enough and not good enough. And I think we don't spend enough time thinking about that. So working for the Open University, then I went on to do various other things while my kids were little. But then I started working at Newcastle Polytechnic, which became Northumbria University and moved through a range of jobs there, but was lucky enough to start working with the amazing, sadly now dead, Liz McDowell, who was a prime influence on my work and continues to be because I worked with her, I wrote with her, I learned from her, and we jointly led a research project on um, seeing assessment from the student's point of view about the, the impact of innovative assessment on students. This uh, was very, very productive to uh, my thinking and my work, not least because the researcher we employed was Kay Samble, who now 
40 plus years on, is still the person I am principally working with. And you may have seen some of the work I've been doing recently um, on uh, assessment during the pandemic and during the huh, aftermath of pandemic, if the pandemic had finished. So that's where it, I came in. But I would also mention a number of key influences for me, which were Graham Gibbs, Chris Rust, Peter Knight, now also sadly dead, and Phil Race, who you may know is my husband, who really helped me start to get published. So assessment therefore became the key part of my life. And it was while I was working at Northumbria, I did my first ever baby steps in publications about self and peer assessment. The first one with a colleague called Peter Dove, who I worked with there, and then on to working with Phil, Graham, and Chris Rust particularly working for the Oxford Centre for Staff and Learning Development. So, I mean, that was a fantastic story, Sally, and a, and a really interesting journey that you've been on. Um, it was also great to hear about the work that you've done with Kay Samble, because I've, I've looked at a lot of that work myself, particularly during the pandemic period, and, and I'm sure many of our listeners have as well, particularly the work around authentic assessment, which I think has been really, really influential. I mean, you mentioned some of the key writers that have influenced you then and also now i mean is there any particular writer that really stands out in terms of shaping your assessment influences well i i again i would go back to liz mcdowell and as i'm talking to you i'm holding in my hands uh the book that i think everybody serious about learning and teaching should be reading which is the volume with Routledge called Assessments for Learning in Higher Education which was written by Liz McDowell with Kay Sambling and Catherine Montgomery who I think have actually led the whole movement on assessment for learning uh, which is something I'm very very committed to and that links very well with your point about authentic assessment Kevin because it was through that assessment for learning uh, movement that we all started thinking um actually learning a bit from schools as well from uh, uh, all kinds of influences there but i think we started thinking about assessment as being not so much separate from learning but absolutely integral to it and that's why all the work I've been doing with Kay during the pandemic was basically focused around thinking about how we can actually continue to make that learning happen throughout the assessment process rather than it being something stuck on at the end which is a terrible wasted opportunity particularly if you start thinking about feedback uh, again currently I'm writing with Kay I spent some time this morning editing some work we're doing thinking about how feedback can be really useful to students and the key thing that we're talking about is that feedback should not be something that happens after the event feedback should be woven right through the whole process like the warp and weft of the fabric so that students shouldn't be seeing feedback as something that's just written comments it should be involved in all the activities in class big classes or small classes using clickers in big classes to get quick feedback um, from students on what they aren't aware of and us to then give them some further feedback on on their conceptions and their pathways through learning or whether it's the dialogic conversations which i think are tremendously important in helping students to understand what the standard of the work is that they're trying to achieve. Um, Roy Sadler 
often talked about the fact that we needed to get students to get a perception of the quality of work that was required during the actual production of it. So when I'm talking about feedback buying dialogic and agentic, uh, back in the old Open University days, years and years ago, they were very keen to get students in tutorials to think about the feedback they'd received on their work and have an active conversation about how that was going to help them write their next assignment. Nowadays, uh, we rarely have the luxury of just sitting with a small number of students and having that conversation. We had never more than 20 in our tutorial groups in those days. Nowadays, therefore, we've got to find really um, intelligent and thoughtful ways of having those dialogues, which don't involve us in loads and loads of extra work. So when I talk about agentic feedback, I'm very keen that the students are agents in their own feedback. And that means that they aren't just the recipient of a bucket of cold water from on high, which is what feedback often feels like to them. They've actually got to be involved in something that's closer to a jacuzzi, that is coming at them from all directions, bathing them in a warm and supportive environment and actually making them feel better afterwards rather than worse. Everything you said there, Sally, is music to my ears. I mean, I've always been a great advocate of feedback being really important in that whole learning to learn piece, that the whole metacognitive piece, if learners are to actually become more successful with their learning, feedback is obviously a huge part of that. I just want to take you back to that point about the wasted opportunity that you mentioned there with assessments, and it leads in quite nicely to my next question. I mean, what does it take to get universities to change how they assess? Well, there aren't many good things that came out of COVID, and I'm sure lots of people listening to the podcast will have had life-changing experiences because of it. But one of the good things that came out of it was that universities had to sit up and take notice. I'm, I'm sure that I wasn't the only person writing about assessment who was then contacted by people saying, what the heck are we supposed to be doing now? We can't have them sitting in exam rooms or doing their presentations on site. And what happened then at that point was Kay and I, who couldn't meet in person in our houses, often would meet in my garden in you know subarctic conditions in winter weather wear, etc. And she and I together started putting some stuff about how we can make assessment happen when it wasn't possible to do it on site. That led us to thinking that actually we might never need to go back to traditional assessment because what people were doing made a difference to student learning. People talked about a real reduction in the attainment gap between students from disadvantaged backgrounds and more advantaged backgrounds because they were doing different kinds of learning and different kinds of assessments. So I don't want there to have to be cataclysmic worldwide change for this, these differences to come about. I want us to be able to use the momentum that came from asking ourselves, can we do things differently? And fight to the barricades, the tendency which people says, oh, well, we can just go back to the same old, same old. But if we want universities to change, I think it takes at least three things. One of those is an evidence base of sound research. And I like to think that I, alongside Kay and Liz McDowell and many others, have 
built on this work over the years to actually demonstrate that different kinds of assessment have really made a difference. And again, I would refer to the work of Naomi Winston, David Carlos, David Bowd, and many others who are really working to change the way people think about assessment. So you need evidence basis for change to happen. The next thing you need, and again, I hope I contribute here, is to have passionate advocates who can take that evidence and make the case and say, actually, yes, you can do assessment differently. You can do it authentically without necessarily running yourself into the ground because you can do it in different ways. You can do it using, for example, the six-stage approach that KNI suggests to making assessment more authentic, as, as you'd read about on our website. But the key thing I'm talking about is, as well as having that evidence, you've got to have advocates. And those advocates have got to be not only external to universities, but internal to universities. So you need the educational developers, the internal teacher fellows, the national teaching fellows, the people who've done the legwork to translate sometimes complex and uh, uh, challenging research outcomes that people have been writing about about assessment and actually translate them into things that we can do differently. So I remember when I was working at Lee Beckett University as PVC for assessment, learning and teaching, and I insisted that my title had assessment at the front end of, because as I said, if you get assessment right, everything else follows. And one of the things we were doing there was we were trying in relatively early days of NSS to get students to receive feedback that was meaningful to them. And so I drove an initiative about getting feedback to the students at a time when they'd care about it rather than within some performative metric. We actually use three weeks as our metric. But I kept saying to people, it's got to be about um, getting the feedback to the students when they still care and there's still something they can do about it. And it's got to be able to feed forward into future assignments. Now, that takes me to my third engine of change in universities. So you've got to have research, you've got to have advocacy, but I think you've also got to have buy-in from senior management. I was fortunate at the time, I was a pro-vice chancellor, I could actually drive things forward, I could actually go to the associate deans and each faculty and say, tell me how you're doing on this three-week turnaround, tell me how you're doing in terms of getting feedback to students while they still can use it. And I could kind of lean on people. So the third thing we're talking about here is having influence at the top of the university, because if the senior managers don't take it seriously, it's not going to make a hape of the difference. And I can give you a negative exemplar there. In the After I left Leeds Beckett, one of the universities I worked with, a very august Scottish university, got me to come in because they have absolutely appalling NSS scores, the second worst in the country for assessment. And I spent three days in their university and worked with lots of people. And what it came down to more than anything else was that they'd had a deputy vice chancellor who'd said to all the staff, don't bother with feedback. It just takes up your time. It reduces the amount of space and time and energy you have for your research. So make sure you only do multi-choice questions and unseen time-constrained campus-based exams. 
Well, good luck with that, because that actually resulted in the most appalling NSS results, as I say, but also a really big missed opportunity. So we've got to have the energy and the passion, the evidence, but we've also got to have senior management buy-in. So that's great advice, isn't it? Evidence, advocates and senior buy-in. That's something I think that all our listeners can uh, can remember and, and cling to. You mentioned there, obviously, the impact of, of COVID and the pandemic, etc. I mean, as universities get back to on-campus assessment, what long-term changes would you foresee? Well, again, without getting into too much detail, I think one of the things universities looked at very hard was the whole idea of whether we can remotely scrutinise what students are doing when they're not on campus by the use of proctoring. And I think certainly I was one of the people who got quite excited about um, the idea that you could get them using laptops with retinal scanning on and all that sort of thing. I actually have turned away from that now because I I read so many stories about students who were penalised because their mum brought them a cup of tea or students who felt uh, exposed because they were asked to pan their camera around 360 degrees to show there was nobody with them, etc. And I actually think that over scrutinizing actually is pretty much dead in the water. What I'm much more interested in is the ways in which we can actually say where there are exams, let's try and make sure that the questions that people are being asked to answer are more related to the learning outcomes. So they're not just, and here I grossly stereotype, they're not just say anything you can think about about the topic that's got a key word in the question stem. It's much more about getting students to think actively, to analyse, to critique, to actually use databases and so on. And this means designing different kinds of exams that are not ones which are subject to people just copying answers out of a book or whatever, or using somebody else in the same room. They've got to be exams that really interrogate the students' um, ability to know, do, and be. I think that's what it's all about. So knowing the information, using that information, and demonstrating those professional and graduate competencies that we want to see in effective lawyers or medics or engineers or, or fine artists. That's what we want. We want to see people who are rounded people who we can recognise as having had a higher education experience. It reminds me a little bit that, Sally, of the whole sort of surface deep and transfer ideas that I think it's John Hattie is a big advocate yeah. of. And, and you know, it's so important, isn't it, to both develop, but also assess those transferable skills that can be used in different contexts, because quite often, you know, the content might not be transferable to different contexts, but certainly those cognitive skills are, aren't they? So and it leads actually quite nicely into into the next question, because you talked a little bit about some of the key factors in, in sort of assessment design. And this is quite an important one, actually, for us at De Montfort University at the moment, because we're undergoing quite an extensive redesign of of all of our curricula. I mean, if people are designing curricula, what are the key factors that should be influencing their choices about assessment and feedback? OK, so I'll, I'll go back to the building blocks of curriculum, which are the learning outcomes. And we have to 
start first of all with the verbs that you have in those limiting outcomes. It goes without saying that we don't want too many and we don't want portmanteau ones that got too many things stuck in. But when we have a look at those verbs, what kind of things are we asking students to do? And, you know, I'm not a great fan of Bloom's taxonomy because I don't think it's a hierarchy. I think it's just a list of useful words. But it's actually what we want students to be able to do is analyse and utilise and um, share with others and communicate effectively and work in groups. So we've got to have a look at what it is aligning with any professional subject regulatory body requirements, what it is that we actually want students to know, do and be at the end of a programme. And then we wrap our assessment around those those activities because it's no use asking students to uh, write about what it means to be an effective occupational therapist. We want them to actually be an effective occupational therapist. So that means doing it. And so we need the learning outcomes to translate into real activities. And those real activities, I think, then turn into the tasks that we're aiming to assess. And we've got to think hard about how those tasks that we're aiming to assess turn into evidence that we can review, share and interrogate to see if they actually say they're delivering what they did. They're actually delivering what they say they deliver. So it goes learning outcomes, tasks, evidence of achievement. And I think if you have a look at that and then you're able to then put on some performance indicators, how well have they done it? What kind of scope was there? Um, what was the depth of their coverage? How effective was their presentation? Whatever. Then I think you've got a good shape for assessment. And the other thing I'd add on to that, Kevin, is I'd say don't throw exams out with the bathwater. We can use exams as long as we make sure that the questions we ask in exams are working really well. Similarly, we can keep on using multiple choice questions, which are an incredibly powerful driver especially if when they do multiple choice questions, they get the answers or they get asked to think about why their answer was correct. So it's not just a guess one answer from five. We need to make sure that the, the punishment fits the crime. So if we say we want students to be able to communicate effectively orally in writing and using a variety of media, I'm sorry, the answer is don't write an essay about it. Actually do it. Produce posters. Do podcasts. Do um, uh, schools uh, guides on how to uh, actively use some kit or something like that. Get them doing things that really demonstrate that the learning has happened, that the person has been transformed by the experience and that they can actually make practical use of their learning, whether that's analysing ancient scripts in Sanskrit or building bridges. That leads again quite nicely into the next question, Sally, because we often talk a lot about authenticity in assessment, don't we? And I was having a conversation with a colleague over in the US a couple of weeks ago, and he used the phrase that it's it's good if an assessment can provide a realistic preview of what learners will be doing in a future career or occupation. I mean, you've done some work, obviously, over the pandemic with, with Kay about authentic assessment. What do, what do you actually mean by that, Sally? What Let's unpick that a little bit. 
Well, I think authentic assessment is assessment that, as I've indicated, links to what you say in your handbook. Students are going to be able to know, do, know, be and do. And if I can give you an example, I often ask people who are working with final year students. So when your students go along for interviews for jobs, and I'm not only talking about employment, authentic assessment is definitely not about employment only, although it is, impact, uh, it is very helpful to students going into employment. But let's just think about that question. When they go into the interview for whatever it is they're doing for voluntary work or employment or um, research or whatever it is, and they sit there in the exam and somebody says to them, could you give me an example of what you have done where you've worked with complex and sometimes incomplete information and how you went about making that work come into um, uh, fruition? Can you tell me about an example where you've had to work as a member of a team and where uh, you've had things that went right and with things that went wrong and what you collectively did about it and what your role was in it? Can you tell me about an occasion when you were asked to uh, take important and complex data and communicate it with the public? The whole range of things that you would hope that students would be able to answer in those kinds of interviews and then say, and can we map those onto the assessments in the final year? Because if you can't see those kinds of things anywhere in the final year, then we're actually not doing a very good job and our assessment is not authentic. Because what we're aiming to do is to send out into the world people who are practitioners, experts, professionals, whether it's fine art or medicine, we want them to be able to be able to do what it says on the tin. And that, for me, is the heart of authentic assessment. I couldn't agree more. Obviously, there has to be a clear measure of, of what it intends to measure, doesn't it? It has to reflect those learning outcomes. One more question then for you, Sally. We're almost at the end. Um, we often hear about programme level assessment, and I've, I've seen you write a little bit about that in the past. What do we mean by programme level assessment and what are the benefits? Well, first of all, I would defer to um, Peter Hartley, uh, who was at Bradford University uh, with Ruth Whitfield and, with, and um, now at um, he's freelance like me, but lives in Scotland. Peter Hartley is the person whose work I would most use on programme level assessment. But my take on this is um, aligned with Peter's and possibly slightly different. What we need to do is to look at a programme and see that over the course of that programme, students are achieving not just the course or module learning outcomes, but the whole programme learning outcomes. And that means saying, have we mastered managing those assessments throughout the programme so students aren't confronted in the final year with a big, massive, important presentation that they can't possibly pass without, but they've never seen presentations ever before in their programme? Are they asked to undertake group work without any proper preparation in unimportant and trivial tasks in class, but where they're getting used to working with other people? Are we helping students to manage the workload by having a look 
across the programme and making sure that students aren't suffering from week seven blues, which is when everybody says, well, we can't assess them for the first six weeks of the uh, uh, module because they know nothing. Brackets, that's not true, is it? Close brackets. We have to do the all oh, about six weeks in is, the, is about right. So week six weeks or seven weeks, that's when students are absolutely snowed under with work from every single module. It's really bad for the students and it's bad for us. We've got to try and phase assessment over the period of the programme. And again, I would refer to the work of the people at Alverno College in the States. I was privileged to work with them for a very short period of time. And at Alverno College, which is a tiny women's Catholic college, which has had a massive influence on thinking about programme level assessment across the whole world, I would argue. And what they would say is, if you're doing a presentation in year one, are the assessment criteria identical to if they were doing a presentation in year three? And if it is, is there something very wrong with what you're doing? Because shouldn't their ability to give a presentation get better over the course of three years? <laughs> so I would argue that the key thing with programme level assessment is you try and think of it from the student perspective. Now, I know when we all introduce modularization to go for the pick and mix approach that I think lots of universities went over the top on, we said, oh, well, the students create their own coherence from what they're doing. Well, I think that's a cop out. I think we've got to help students create a cohesive learning experience, even if there is uh, an option of doing different things within modularity. We've got to create a coherent experience that's going to enable them to come out of a, an undergraduate or postgraduate degree experience, having felt that, that they've been well served by their staff, well served by the university, and that they've done justice to themselves. Again, I couldn't agree more, Sally. I think throughout the course of our conversation today, you've provided some excellent information, really usable stuff as well that people can start to really think about and reflect on in terms of their own practice and some great links to different authors and different texts that we should all go out and get our hands on. Sally, I can't thank you enough for joining us on the podcast today. Um, once again, thanks ever so much. And um, it would be great to get you back on at some point in the future to discuss assessment in a bit more detail. Thank you, Kevin. It's been a pleasure working with you.